Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And do you hear that? That's right. That's the news knocking. So let's get right into it. Derek, why don't we start with a Ukraine update? Sure. So most of the action in Ukraine uh, this week seems to have taken place actually outside of Ukraine uh, and it involved the Russian military establishment. Uh, Basically, making a bunch of phone calls over the weekend uh, with Western their Western counterparts to tell them that they had intel. I guess I don't know that the Ukrainian military was building a dirty bomb or a radiological dispersal device to be used in some kind of unspecified false flag scenario where they would try. I guess set it off in Ukraine and blame the Russians, uh, and this was somehow going to achieve something for the Ukrainians. I don't know. If Russia claims Ukraine's preparing something, it means one thing, said Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, suggesting it's actually Russia that plans to use a dirty bomb. There's no evidence that Ukraine is building a, a, a dirty bomb. I mean, it wouldn't take much. You, the Ukrainians obviously have access to bombs. They have access to radiological material from, from their nuclear plants. So they, it would take very much for them to do it. Um, there's no evidence that they, they have, but the Russians nevertheless took this claim all the way to the UN Security Council on Tuesday. Uh, they warned that they would treat a Ukrainian dirty bomb use as an act of nuclear terrorism, and there was a lot of back and forth about this. As you might expect, the audience for the Russians uh, at the Security Council was not terribly receptive to this claim. The Ukrainian government has apparently... Uh, invited the International Atomic Energy Agency to come and inspect a couple of its nuclear facilities just to, I guess, uh, try to say uh, whether they see any evidence uh, of work on a dirty bomb. I'm not sure why or how that would be conclusive. But the Russians, as I say, they took took the claim to the Security Council. They are they also began circulating a resolution, uh, which is a throwback to like the beginning of the war, even the pre-war period, where they were claiming that the Ukrainian government and the U.S. have been operating these biological weapons labs in Ukraine. So they want a, a resolution that would open an investigation uh, into those claims. I suspect part of the, the U.N. piece of this is they're trying to kind of throw a lot of chaff in the air because there's a push at the U.N. to investigate Russia's acquisition of drones and try to tie that to Iran. They probably, you know, as we've said uh, before, uh, been acquiring loitering munitions, basically self-destructing drones from the Iranians, but they've been denying it, and the Iranians have denied that their weapons are being used in Ukraine. So they they might be trying to kind of uh, throw some some flashy, shiny objects out there and, and hoping to distract attention from this. Beyond that, uh, what's been happening in Ukraine, um, as usual, it's been pretty slow and grinding progress. There's some evidence. Uh, there was some. There was a report earlier this week that the Ukrainians had made a little bit of progress in Luhansk uh, Oblast, which would be um, significant in that Luhansk is in the Donbass, uh, Ukraine hasn't controlled any part of Luhansk for, for quite some time. Uh, there's also 
there have also been claims that they've been advancing still in, in Kherson in the south, where they've been uh, you know, undertaking a counteroffensive for several weeks. Uh, that counteroffensive, as far as I can tell, seems like it's, it's kind of stalled out. The Ukrainians were, were talking about some indications that they'd gotten over the weekend that the Russians were preparing to withdraw from their positions uh, west of the Dnipro River. That no longer seems to be the case. And in fact, it looks like they are reinforcing those positions. So there may be a fairly major battle to come uh, you know, in, in the coming days or weeks. The other hotspot has been the city of Bakhmut, which is in Donetsk Oblast. Uh, Russian soldiers, or more specifically the Wagner Group and their uh, mercenary paramilitaries, uh, have been for some time now kind of you know throwing everything they had, it seems like, against uh, Bakhmut. They have yet to take the city or, or even kind of take any part of it. Uh, so that also seems to be a, a stalled front uh, at this point. The last thing I guess I would say about uh, the war, uh, there was an interesting piece in Al Jazeera earlier this week by a sociologist named Volodymyr Ischenko, uh, who made a compelling case that this partial mobilization that the Russian government has engaged in, which has been characterized uh, in the media to a, to a large extent as sort of a nuisance for the Russian public and a uh, real danger because people are going to get upset. And it did spark you know, some moves to... Uh, from people to to flee the country rather than be drafted and uh, some protests, which we hadn't seen since the early weeks of the war. But that said, uh, Ischenko's piece makes a pretty compelling argument that uh, Russia is now doing military Keynesianism through this war, that the mobilization, uh, the, the plans for reconstructing uh, the parts of Ukraine that Russia now claims to have annexed, um, you know, all of these things are uh, creating opportunities for people to get jobs, fairly well-paying jobs by Russian standards, uh, and that that may actually build support in the Russian public for uh, continuing the war and, and for a you know fairly extended conflict. So does it look like it's becoming the frozen conflict, which in some cases is, is kind of the worst of all possible worlds? Yeah, I mean, I think it's looked that way for, for some time now. Um, you know, the Ukrainian, the rapid Ukrainian advance in Kharkiv last month, and there was a, a moment earlier this month where they made some fairly rapid progress in Kherson. Those things have, I think, obfuscated a little bit the fact that uh, for the most part, this conflict has remained um, in the places where the Russians have major forces, which excludes, I think, Kharkiv, which uh, I would say was no longer part of their you know, a, a central focus of their attention. This has been mostly frozen for a long time now. Now, as winter approaches, it's going to get, uh, it'll be interesting. I mean, you know, if, if it's a cold winter, if the ground freezes, that, um, you know, could actually make moving around a little bit easier than it is right now. It's It's been fairly rainy from my understanding, especially in the southern part of the country, uh, which has made military maneuvers more difficult. But yeah, I think, you know, with winter approaching it, it, it does feel like it's going to settle into something for several months, which is not great. It's, it's particularly not great if, you know, if you're a Ukrainian civilian who's dealing with uh, these Russian missile strikes and, and drone strikes that have been targeting infrastructure, uh, you're now in a country that has lost, you know, between a third and a half of its power generation capabilities. You're, you're going to be facing blackouts probably throughout the winter. Uh, you know, potentially there's been, you know, there've been impacts on thermal power generation. So heating may be a problem. Uh, it's, it's, it's not going to be, I think, a pretty picture over the winter. But the question of 
whether it freezes now or if you know freezes uh, the the war, I should say, freezes uh, over the winter or after the winter when again Ukraine goes through a a fairly t- typically goes through a fairly rainy period. Um, that that I think remains to be seen, and it depends on what kind of weather you get. There's been a lot of uh, new developments in the United Kingdom. Um, tell us a little bit about this new prime minister. Yeah, Rishi Sunak is now prime minister. Basically, by default, uh, sadly, the dream of Boris Johnson 2.0 died on Sunday uh, when he withdrew his candidacy. Derek, the dream uh, never dies. Liz Truss. Sorry. Well, the dream I mean, never he does. could always come back someday, but but the the dream of it happening this week uh, did definitely die. Uh, but Liz Truss, uh, you know, obviously is, you know, had, had was leaving. She announced her resignation last week. Uh, there was a mini race uh, to see who would succeed her within the Conservative Party. Uh, the process was uh, candidates who wanted to stand in this election had to uh, get the endorsement, uh, the written endorsement of at least of at least 100 conservative MPs. Uh, if only one candidate got to that threshold, they would automatically succeed Truss. Uh, if more than one did, it would be put to a vote of the party membership. Uh, as it happens, Sunak was the only one verifiably to make that threshold. Uh, so there was no election. He became uh, PM basically by virtue of being the only man standing. Uh, Johnson, as I said, dropped out on Sunday. And on Monday, uh, Penny Mordaunt, who was the only other contender at that point uh, with any possible chance of getting to the, the minimum threshold, she also withdrew. Uh, so Sunak is now PM. Uh, he put his cabinet together. Uh, it seems to be fairly uh, continuous with trusses. Uh, most of the major ministries were left untouched. Uh, Jeremy Hunt is still Chancellor of the Exchequer. James Cleverly is still Foreign Secretary. Ben Wallace is still Defense Secretary. He actually welcomed back Suella Braverman, who had been Home Secretary and resigned like the day before Trust did. Uh, after having admitted to violations of the ministerial code. So, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're doing great on the integrity and accountability front already with this new cabinet. Uh, Sunak becomes the first person of color to be UK prime minister. He is also apparently, and I found this somewhat shocking, uh, the richest person ever to be UK prime minister. Um, again, I, I found that surprising given, you know, you would think there was somebody in like the 18th century or 19th century who was, uh, you know, in modern dollars would have been richer, but apparently not. They've done the math. Sunak is probably the richest person to hold that office, which I think is good because as we all know, uh, rich people are, uh, you know, there's a correlation between personal wealth and personal virtue and, and, you know, competence. So, uh, should work out great for everybody. Well, we're looking forward um, to him, you know, just doing a great job for the UK. Uh, so, Derek, why don't we now move over to Iran and what's been going on there? So, uh, protests uh, over the death of Masa Amini have continued. Uh, there was some Iranian deputy cabinet official, I can't remember uh, who it was, tried to tell reporters, I think, over the weekend that um, the protests were in their last, their final days. Uh, which had the ring to me of Dick Cheney telling people in 2005 that the Iraqi insurgency was in its last throes. Um, and I think, uh, y- you know, events since then have have borne that out. Uh, Wednesday was the 40th day uh, after Amini's funeral, which um, in Islam and in other uh, some other religious traditions is a significant memorial day. It manifested in a, in a very large demonstration march 
to Amini's gravesite in the city of Sahez uh, that was uh, fired upon apparently by security forces, although I haven't seen any indication uh, in terms of casualties. Um, but there is, at this point, uh, no indication that the protests are in their final days and it has some indication that this 40-day commemoration kind of uh, provided a, a new burst of momentum. Protesters chanting freedom, freedom, swarmed through the alleyways of Tehran's Grand Bazaar, which had closed for the day in solidarity. There are a couple of incidents of violence to note. Uh, there was a, a, an Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, a couple of Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps personnel were killed in southeastern uh, Iran, uh, in Sistan and Baluchistan province earlier this week. Um, that region has had been dealing with unrest for its own reasons. Sistan and Baluchistan has its own um, very tenuous uh, relationship with Tehran. Uh, and, but it's, you know, it's part of this whole, uh, this overall kind of feeling of, of unrest across the country. Uh, another IRGC uh, member, an intelligence officer, was uh, reportedly killed on Wednesday in Hamadan province. Uh, it, authorities have blamed that shooting uh, on what they term rioters, which is their euphemism for the protesters. Uh, and then uh, most seriously, also on Wednesday, there was an attack, basically a, a mass shooting uh, at the Shah Chirag shrine uh, in Shiraz. Uh, I think at least 15 people, that was the last, uh, last figure I saw, were killed in that shooting. The Iranian authorities initially blamed this on uh, Takfiri terrorists uh, and then Islamic State claimed responsibility, actually claimed responsibility online for the shooting. Uh, so that that seemed to be, a, you know, somewhat separate from the protests. It sounds like uh, the Iranians are now trying to walk back their initial attribution of this to IS or like-minded fellows uh, and blame it on the protesters as well. I don't think that's going to fly, but, um, you know, that's, uh, it, it would be convenient for them any, anyway if it were the protesters that would provide a justification for further crackdowns, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But as I say, the, the upshot here is um, these demonstrations do not seem to be going anywhere. Let's move on uh, to Myanmar. Yeah, so, I mean, we don't talk very much about the, the Myanmar conflict. We probably should, but, but news out of Myanmar is uh, difficult to come by. Uh, but this week there was a major... Um, uh, you know, I would say atrocity, basically an airstrike, um, on Sunday, uh, in Kachin state, uh, there was a, some sort of ceremony being held by, um, either the, the Kachin independence army or it's a political wing. Um, he, he, and the Myanmar military bombed it. They killed at least, uh, I think at last count 80 people. Um, so just, a uh, you know, major, event, major casualty, high casualty event. Um, related to that, there was a report from uh, the UN's envoy to Myanmar, I think on Tuesday, it was Tuesday, sorry. Uh, she spoke to the, she testified to the UN General Assembly's Human Rights Committee and painted a, a dismal picture of, of si the, the situation in that country, uh, talking about uh, millions of people in food insecurity, 1.3 million people displaced, um, just an ongoing campaign from the military and the junta uh, of uh, kind of indiscriminate bombing of civilians, uh, burning out villages and homes in, in an effort to root out uh, local militias and resistors. Um, so, so really not a pretty picture. There is a growing 
or there have been, I think I would say growing calls in some circles, in, in particular at the UN, for some kind of global international response to the situation in Myanmar that would be uh, in aligned or a, akin to what the U.S. and NATO have done with Ukraine in terms of, you know, kind of sanctioning the junta, um, you know, kind of supporting the the shadow civilian government, the national unity government, and the militias that are working with it. Um, I don't see a lot of appetite in the halls of power, let's say, in the West for, for anything like that. But there have been calls for it, especially, you know, kind of increasingly uh, of late. Let's move over to China. What's been going on there with the Congress and Xi, and how's everything looking? Uh, looking over there, it's it's uh, yeah, it's looking great, man. They, they had a the <laughs> they had their That's party what I Congress thought. last week. It it wrapped up over the weekend, where as expected, uh, Xi Jinping was given another five year term, both as head of the party, and then uh, that'll translate into another term as president. Uh, that that those political offices, the, uh, the kind of offices of state don't get officially dealt with until March. So, uh, you don't have to wait till for the official word on that until then, but it's, uh, you know, it's a, obviously a done deal at this point. There was no real uncertainty, uh, about the, that piece of things. I mean, she was, uh, you know, in line to get this third term, uh, the entire time. What I think people were watching for was any indication about a plan of succession, uh, and that would involve, uh, you know, who's getting appointed to high party offices. They introduced the new Politburo Standing Committee, which is the, you know, the main kind of locus for for up and comers, or if you're you're watching for any up and comers uh, to hit the committee. And it, as it happens, there really aren't any alongside she. Six of his allies were also unveiled as the members of the Politburo Standing Committee. They include Deng Shuisheng, Xi Jinping's private secretary, and Tsai Shi, seen as one of the president's closest allies. There is also Li Cheng, one of Xi's most trusted proteges. He's widely expected to become the next premier. The, <laughs> there really weren't any appointed to the committee. They were all all the people appointed to the committee seem to have uh, fairly close relationships. To she and and that seems to have been the main consideration here. Uh, all of the the members of the committee, including she himself, uh, are uh, too old to be candidates to succeed she in, in 2027. The next time they they do this, um, and to serve a full two terms as party leader before their mandatory retirements would kick in. Um, so it doesn't appear there doesn't appear to be any kind of young gun on the the committee who's being groomed for anything. The one other thing I'll say about the the weekend's events at the closing ceremony of the party congress, there was a a, a kind of you know, kerfuffle or or you know kind of uh, incident that that happened uh, with Xi's predecessor Hu Jintao, uh, who was ushered out of the hall uh, kind of very conspicuously uh, by his handlers while he was looking sort of confused and not necessarily. Uh, wanting to go along with them, it was an in, it was a, a fascinating scene for something that's as as well managed and stage managed as these things typically are. This was definitely not uh, you know sort of can, uh, uh, kind of it didn't seem like it was uh, a, a well managed incident. And there's been tremendous amount of speculation because of course 
uh, Western media likes to do nothing if not speculate about the collapse of the Chinese Communist Party or uh, various other regimes that the United States does not care for around the world. Um, there's been a lot of speculation that maybe he was ushered out because she was making some kind of power statement and, you know, kind of sidelining his predecessor or something. Uh, the claim, the official claim is that he uh, felt ill and had to be taken out of the hall for that reason. Um, who is 79? So, you know, the fact that he looked confused as he was being ushered out, I don't want to, you know, uh, delve into ageism here, but it's possible that he's just kind of a frail guy and not entirely aware of what was going on. American uh, Prestige age. denounces Derek's awful ageism. Yes, I, I, I'm, Official I feel bad statement. even saying it. I do feel bad even saying it. But, you know, it is possible. It is possible he's not uh, fully kind of uh, cognizant of what's going on. Um, I, I don't know. I just know that this has been like every day there's been some new supposed revelation about what happened to who. There was new video unearthed, I think, yesterday or the day before, um, you know, that showed him... Uh, you know, in some back and forth with one of his aides over a document, and it's all just nonsense. I <laughs> think like this this China watching crap just drives me nuts. But I, I figured we should. Did it work it when it was Kremlinology and doesn't it work now? It's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, doesn't doesn't work with North Korea. It just doesn't work. We're not good at it, and uh, it's it's well, well I'm good at it, but no one's else. asking. Well, me, so. okay, yeah, nobody's. Derek, nobody's no, Derek does not speak for, for us all, humble listeners. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, just, just, you know, throwing that out there that it's in the wind, but, uh, I, I wouldn't put too much uh, emphasis on. All right, Derek, let's move over to the Western hemisphere and talk about Haiti. Is the United States going to invade? Uh, so yeah, there's some, uh, this is interesting because the UN security council, as we, I think we mentioned last week has been considering two possible resolutions, uh, one to sanction, uh, Haitian gang members. Basically, it was focused on uh, Jimmy Cherizier, who's sort of the the, the ringleader of uh, a, a round of gang violence that's really uh, you know impacted the country over the last few weeks. Uh, and the other was uh, a resolution that the U.S. and Mexico were drafting to potentially green light some sort of military intervention. Uh, the council voted on Friday unanimously. Interestingly enough, because there had been uh, some indication earlier in the week that. Uh, Russia was unhappy with uh, the sanctions resolution, but they voted unanimously on Friday uh, to pass the sanctions resolution. So they they sanctioned Cherizier, and there's you know the door is open for uh, sanctioning other um, you know other people who are deemed to be impacting Haitian stability and, and freedom and democracy. Blah blah blah. Uh, the other piece of this, the military intervention, uh, has been stalled out. And McClatchy News actually reported on Tuesday, the Miami Herald and McClatchy uh, reported on Tuesday that um, essentially w what had happened was the U.S. Uh, drafted this resolution. The Biden administration pledged to support an intervention, but it did not commit any U.S. soldiers to it. Uh, and so it's been circulating this thing, trying to find other countries to volunteer to participate. And the answer has basically been uh, no. <laughs> like nobody has agreed to participate uh, in, in this intervention. So it's it's stalled out. The only bite at the apple, it seems like the administration has had, is from the uh, Caribbean Community Block or CARICOM. Uh, but they haven't committed to anything. And even if they did, it's unclear how many forces they could actually bring to bear uh, to send to Haiti. 
Um, the Biden administration really seems to want Canada to take the lead here. Um, and so they have been uh, asking Justin Trudeau's government and asking, I think uh, Tony Blinken is heading to Canada uh, today, Thursday, uh, or possibly tomorrow to kind of uh, try to do a little arm twisting. But at this point, there's just nobody interested in taking on this mission. And so the United States is kind of, uh, it's, it's kind of in limbo, I, I would say. Well, Derek, the news is out there and you stalk, hunt, and capture it. Thank you so much once again. And everyone will see you soon. And uh, we normally don't do this, but everyone, again, if you're a free listener, please consider signing up for the extra interviews. We've got a bunch of great series coming up. We're going to finish out the series on Palestine, on gay life in Germany, on the currency of politics with Stephen. There's just a bunch of really good stuff uh, coming up. And as always, we really appreciate everyone listening. And please, if you can, uh, leave a review, rate us, uh, send us around to your friends. That's how we grow our listenership base. And that's how we uh, take the American empire apart. One brick at a time. Isn't that right, Derek? Uh, sure. Yep. Derek agrees, everybody. He, he wouldn't just say that. So again, thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.